Hello, James Kenny here. Welcome to my podcast, Land of the Golden Sunset, the evolution of the Irish from biblical times. This is episode number 38, entitled Economics in Ireland after the Anglo-Irish Treaty, 1923 to 1949. I hope you like this and that you will share with others on social media. If you wish to become a patron of this podcast, you can do so by visiting www.landofthegoldensunset.podbean.com. originated from the British government loans granted to Irish tenant farmers by the Land Commission from the 1880s, which had enabled them to purchase lands from their former landlords under the Irish Land Acts. In 1923, the Free State Government, led by W.T. Cosgrave, had assured Britain that they would honour its debts and hand over the land annuities and other financial liabilities. Under the 1925 London Agreement, the Irish Free State was relieved from its treaty obligation to pay its share towards the public debt of the United Kingdom. The Free State's liability to supervise and pass on land annuity payments led to controversy and debate on whether they were private or public debts. In 1932, Eamon de Valera interpreted that the annuities were part of the public debt from which the Free State had been exempted and decided that the Free State would no longer pay them to Britain. The Irish Free State government passed the Land Act of 1933 that allowed the money to be spent on local government projects. After a series of high-level talks in 1932, Discussions broke down in October of that year on whether the liability to pay the land annuities should be adjudicated by a panel chosen from experts from the British Empire. This was the British suggestion. Or from the whole world, the Irish view. On the agenda also was a counterclaim and de Valera required the British to pay back the 30 million already paid in land commission annuities and pay the Irish Free State 400 million in respect of Britain's alleged overtaxation of Ireland between 1801 and 1922. To recover the annuities, British Prime Minister Ramsay MacDonald retaliated with the imposition of 20% import duty on Irish Free State agricultural products into the UK which constituted, at the time, 90% of all Free State exports. UK households were unwilling to pay 20% extra for these food products. The Free State responded in kind by placing a similar duty on British imports, and in the case of coal from the UK, with the remarkable slogan from Jonathan Swift in the 1720s, burn everything English except their coal. While the UK was much less affected by the ensuing economic war, the Irish economy was badly affected. The hardship of the economic war, which particularly affected farmers, was enormous and exasperated class tensions in the rural Irish Free State. 
1935, a coal cattle pact eased the situation somewhat, whereby Britain agreed to increase its imports of Irish cattle by a third in return for the free state importing more of Britain's coal. As the cattle industry remained in dire straits, the Irish government purchased most of the surplus beef for which it paid bounties for each calf slaughtered as they could not be exported. It introduced a free beef for the poor scheme, the hides finding use in the tanning and leather industries. For many farmers, especially the larger cattle breeders, the agricultural depression had disastrous consequences. With farmers having little money to spend, there was a considerable decline in the demand for manufactured goods, so that industries were also affected. The introduction of new import tariffs helped some Irish industries to expand when Sean Lamass introduced the Control of Manufactures Act, whereby the majority ownership of Irish free state companies was to be limited to Irish citizens. However, this caused dozens of large Irish companies with foreign investors, such as Guinness, to relocate their headquarters abroad and pay their corporate taxes there. Sugar beet factories were opened in Mallow, Tium and Thurlis. The economic war did not seriously affect the balance of trade between the two countries because imports from Britain were restricted. But British exporters were very critical of their government due to the loss of business. They also suffered in Ireland by having to pay tariffs on goods they exported there. Both the pressure they exerted on the British government and the discontent of Irish farmers with the Fianna Fáil government helped to encourage both sides to seek a settlement of the economic dispute. In 1935 tensions began to ease off between Britain and Ireland with the 20% tax duties on imports Coal and cattle were becoming increasingly harder to buy because of the prices. There was such a surplus of cattle in Ireland that farmers had begun to slaughter their own cattle because they could not be sold to the British. This caused Britain and Ireland to sign the Coal Cattle Pact, which meant that buying these commodities would be cheaper and easier for the public to acquire. The Coal Cattle Pact indicated a willingness to end the economic war. The resolution of the crisis came after a series of talks in London between the British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain and Eamon de Valera, who was accompanied by Sean Lamass and James Ryan. An agreement to reach an acceptable settlement was drawn up in 1938, enacted in Britain as the ERA Confirmation of Agreements Act. Under the terms of the three-year Anglo-Irish Trade Agreement, all duties imposed during the previous five years were lifted. The Irish Free State came to an end with the coming into force of the new constitution on the 29th of December 1937, when the state took the name Ireland. Sean Francis Lamass, 1899-1971, was a Sinn Féin and Fianna Fáil politician who served as Taoiseach and leader of Fianna Fáil from 1959 to 1966. He also served as Tánishta, Minister for Industry and Commerce, Minister for Supplies, and he served as a TD or Chapter Dollar from 1924 to 1969. A veteran of the 1916 Easter Rising, the War of Independence and the Civil War, 
Sean Lamas was first elected as a Sinn Féin TD for the Dublin South constituency in a by-election on the 18th of November 1924 and was returned at each election until the constituency was abolished in 1948 when he was re-elected for Dublin South Central until his retirement in 1969. He was a founder member of Fianna Fáil in 1926. Sean Lamas is widely regarded as the father of modern Ireland, primarily due to his efforts in facilitating industrial growth, bringing foreign direct investment into the country and forging permanent links between Ireland and the European community. One of the most important modernisation reforms during Lamas's tenure was the introduction of free secondary education an initiative that took effect shortly after Lamas retired as Taoiseach. On Saturday, the 10th of September 1966, which in fact was my 17th birthday, the Fianna Fáil Education Minister, Donegal O'Malley, famously made his unauthorised speech announcing plans for free second-level education in Ireland. Free second-level education was eventually introduced in September 1967 and is now widely seen as a milestone in Irish history. James Ryan, 1892-1970, was an Irish politician who served in every Fianna Fáil government from 1932 to 1965 as Minister for Agriculture, Minister for Health and Social Welfare, Minister for Finance. He served as a TD for Wexford from 1918 to 1922 and 1923 to 1965 and as a senator from 1965 to 1969. He had been a member of Sinn Féin until he joined Fianna Fáil upon the party's foundation in 1926. During the Easter Rising in 1916, James Ryan was the medical officer in the General Post Office. He was, along with James Connolly, one of the last people to leave the GPO when the evacuation took place. Following the surrender, of the Patriots. Ryan was deported to Her Majesty's prison, Stafford, in England, and subsequently at Frangoch internment camp in Wales. He was released in August 1916. Although the period of the economic war resulted in severe social suffering and heavy financial loss for Ireland, its outcome was publicised as favourable. Ireland was still entitled to impose tariffs on British imports to protect new Irish industries. The treaty also settled the potential three million per annum land annuities liability by a one-off payment to Britain of 10 million and a waiver by both sides of all similar claims and counterclaims. However, it was known in the 1930s that the land annuities payments in Northern Ireland of some £650,000 per annum were being retained by its government and not passed on to London. It remains unclear why the Irish government did not mention this in the course of negotiations. The agreement also included the return to Ireland of the treaty ports, which had been retained by Britain under a provision of the 1921 Anglo-Irish Treaty. With the outbreak of World War II in 1939, the return of the ports allowed Ireland to remain neutral. Following the establishment of the Irish Free State, three deepwater ports at Bearhaven and Spike Island in Cork and Loch Swilly in Donegal 
were retained by the United Kingdom under the terms of the Anglo-Irish Treaty of the 6th of December 1921. The main reason for the retention of the ports was the U-boat campaign around Irish coasts during World War I and the concern of the British government that it might reoccur. As a part of the overall Anglo-Irish settlement, all other Royal Navy, British Army and RAF personnel and equipment were evacuated from the Irish Free State. Some years later, as part of the settlement of the Anglo-Irish trade war in the 1930s, the ports were transferred to Ireland, the Free State's successor, in 1938, following agreements reached between the British and Irish governments. From 1932 until 1938, the governments of the former Irish Free State and the United Kingdom had been involved in a long-running Anglo-Irish trade war that was not in the interest of either state's economy. In September 1937, Malcolm MacDonald made it clear to Eamon de Valera that the United Kingdom was prepared to give up the ports if the Irish gave a guarantee that the British could use them in times of war. Under pressure to ease the burden of the trade war in November 1937, de Valera proposed talks between the two governments. Shortly afterwards, the Irish Situation Committee, chaired by Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, recommended a potential package deal for Ireland that would include returning the ports subject to the agreements of the Chiefs of Staff. Chamberlain had come to the view that it was worth surrendering the treaty ports unconditionally to obtain the essential goodwill of the Irish Free State. Negotiations to settle the matters in dispute took place in 1938. The Anglo-Irish Trade Agreement was signed on the 25th of April 1938 and a section relating to the treaty ports was included. The Government of ERA and the Government of the United Kingdom have agreed as follows. 1. The provisions of Article 6 and 7 of the Articles of Agreement for a Treaty between Great Britain and Ireland signed on the 6th day of December 1921 and of the Annex thereto shall cease to have effect. Thereafter, the Government of the United Kingdom will transfer to the Government of ERA the Admiralty, Property and Rights at Bearhaven and the Harbour Defences at Bearhaven, Cove and Loxwilly, now occupied by care and maintenance parties furnished by the United Kingdom, together with buildings, magazines, emplacements, instruments and fixed armaments, with ammunition therefore, at present, at the said ports. 3. The transfer will take place not later than the 31st of December 1938. In the meantime, the detailed arrangements for the transfer will be the subject of discussion between the two governments. Done in duplicate at London this, the 25th day of April 1938. Economists tell us that Ireland, on the eve of independence, was predominantly a rural economy, save for the industrialised areas in the northeast. It was poorer than the rest of the UK, with a GDP per capita that was just 62% of Great Britain's. Living standards were comparable with other countries in Europe. Finland, Norway, Sweden, Portugal and Spain all had lower GDP per capita than Ireland, while Denmark's was not much greater. During this time, 
Ireland's external trade was dominated by Britain, to which it exported agricultural products and from which it imported manufactured goods and coal. Trade policy was determined in London, and this meant that Ireland effectively operated a free trade policy. Without a parliament of its own since the Act of Union of 1800, MPs were elected to the Westminster Parliament to represent Irish interests, but economic policy was determined in London. After the War of Independence, from 1919 to 1921, the Anglo-Irish Treaty created an Irish Free State with fiscal independence, covering 26 of Ireland's 32 counties. The remaining six counties in the North remained part of the UK as Northern Ireland. Economists say that despite Unionist fears about the fiscal capacity of an independent Ireland, Irish fiscal policy was decidedly conservative for its first 50 years of independence. Public finances were helped significantly by the effective cancellation of Ireland's national debt. After a period of negotiation, a substantial proportion of Irish debt was written off in 1925. Although the political price of formally accepting the existing border with Northern Ireland was high. Between the 1920s and the 1950s, budget deficits were controlled and debt interest rarely exceeded 2% of the total value of goods and services produced in the country, that is, its gross national product. Indeed, the economic crisis of the 1950s was compounded by excessive fiscal caution rather than excess. After the Irish Free State was established, the newly created Irish government faced financial challenges and had to rely on short-term borrowing from Irish banks for the first few months of its existence. There were also difficulties in raising and collecting taxes in the early years due to evasion and avoidance. Initial inquiries made by the new Irish State Department of Finance to the Irish banks and the Dublin Stock Exchange about long-term borrowing suggested that a UK guarantee would be essential for a loan flotation to be successful. Yet, these views proved to be incorrect and the first national loan was in fact oversubscribed. Contemporary opinion was positive. The Economist noted on the 8th of December 1923 how the Irish Free State had restored order within its boundaries and reorganised its economic and political administration. It went on to state that the 10 million loan had been fully subscribed by the public, highlighting how this internal loan meant that there was no need for external borrowing, signalling public confidence in the new state. The article in The Economist also argued that this sent a signal abroad that would do much to wipe out the unhappy impression created by the Civil War following independence. Subsequently, national loans mainly traded at a premium and yields ranged between 3.5% and 5.5%. In comparison, UK yields ranged between 2.7% and 4.8% over the same period and only in 1934 was there any discernible premium on Irish Free State Government bonds relative to the UK. The 26 counties of Ireland was officially declared a republic in 1949, following the Republic of Ireland Act 1948. The Republic of Ireland became a member of the United Nations in December 1955 and joined the European Communities, 
the predecessor of the European Union in 1973. Believe 
Battles. 